You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you're a great and loving God, and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for how you answer prayer. We thank you for how you come and meet with your people. And we ask right now, Lord, we ask it in the name of your Son that you would come and uh, speak to us. Lord, we've worshipped you. We want to continue with a heart of surrendered worship before you now as we approach your word. And as we allow you to speak into our souls. So now, Lord, having spoken to you, our hearts in worship, now we look to you to speak to us. We just say simply, Lord, speak because your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin at verse 23 this morning. And we've been following this story of the two apostles, Peter and John, as they went to go pray on the Temple Mount. As they went to pray, they came to a specific gate at the temple called the Beautiful Gate. And there, just through the remarkable leading of God and and really a special work by God's Spirit, uh, a, a man was healed who had been lame since birth. And in a dramatic way, uh, Peter grabbed a hold of this guy and he said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he pulled him to his feet and the man was instantaneously healed. It drew a great big commotion. And with that commotion, Peter took full advantage of it and he began to preach to, to the excited, interested crowd that gathered together there on the Temple Mount. And he preached to him about Jesus. He preached to that whole crowd. about Jesus, about who he is and what he had done for them. And this got them into some trouble. That's what we took a look at last week. The trouble they got into because of it. They got carried away by the the Jewish religious leaders of that time who, who had a legitimate interest in, you know, regulating and seeing what was being taught there publicly on the Temple Mount. But, but the way they went about it and the heart with which they went about it wasn't really good, wasn't really right. But at the end of it all, Peter and John had the opportunity to very boldly preach before that gathered group of religious leaders and to proclaim that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, but only by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And at the end of it all, they let him go. So now just having been released by the authorities, after what must have been a pretty scary and intimidating time, Now look at the report that comes from Peter and John, starting now at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they came back, as verse 23 tells us, very excited, no doubt. I mean, they would be excited for a few reasons. They would be excited that they were released, right? I mean, let's not forget that this was the same, or at least roughly the same, group of religious leaders that that only a few months before had sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate for him to be crucified. And they, they, they did that to Jesus, but they ended up releasing Peter and John. 
They would be excited about that, of course, that their lives were spared. They would be excited that they had the opportunity to preach Jesus to those leaders. What a tremendous opportunity that they'd be able to present who Jesus is and what he had done for them on the cross. And, and Peter did that with great boldness. That They would be excited that they did it boldly, right? It's just wonderful when God gives you boldness in a situation and you don't chicken out, so to speak, but you're able to deliver the message as God gives you to do it. I would think as much as anything, Peter and John would have been super excited because the text says that they saw that those men had been with Jesus. When anybody sees that about you, you're excited. So I just picture Peter and John going back to their companions. I don't know, their apostolic companions, the community of the early church. Obviously, at this point, even in Jerusalem, the, the, the number of Christians is numbered now in the thousands, right? There's some 5,000 Christians, not even just the 120 that started with on the day of Pentecost. But there's some 5,000 Christians, so they couldn't meet with everybody. But they met with their circle, and in a very excited way, they reported, verse 23, all that the chief priests and the elders had said. And then what did they do? They instantly began to pray. See, in response, that early Christian community, their own companions, the the apostles and some others, they had a prayer meeting. The important events that Peter and John just experienced, it moved them to prayer. And quite spontaneously, they began to have a wonderful little prayer meeting. I mean, verse 24 describes this. It says that they raised their voice together in prayer. Well, I see something right there important about prayer. It says that they prayed vocally, does it not? They raised their voice together. Now look, I know, I know that God should be in our thoughts and there's a legitimate way that we commune with God just in the thoughts of our mind, just just with the musings of our hearts all through the day. I think that sort of fulfills what the Apostle Paul would later write about when he said that we should be always in prayer, right? But yet, yet, there's a special time and a special place for us to pray, and if I could say, to pray vocally. Now those words, that terrifies some of you. There's more than a few people here, you would be absolutely terrified if you were asked or expected to pray in front of a group of people. And I'm not even talking about a large group. I'm not even talking about standing up here on this platform. I'm talking about if you were in a home group with with 10 other people, you, you would be terrified if you were expected to pray vocally in front of that group. And let me just say, if that's you, God loves you and has all sorts of compassion towards you. I don't necessarily think that your problem is some uh, spiritual deficiency. I mean, theoretically, it could be. But a lot of times people are just plain nervous about speaking in front of other people, right? And listen, I would just say this. It's a good thing to pray vocally in your own devotional life, right? This has been a trap for me in my devotional life. I don't know about you. But sometimes I think I'll just pray in my mind and I won't pray vocally. I'll tell you what happens to me when I do that. I often fall asleep, don't you? Is, is that just me that happens to? And so there's something about speaking forth what you pray to God. Now, I'm not saying that it's illegitimate to pray in your mind. I'm just saying that there should also be a time of prayer in your life where you pray with your voice. 
And if you can do it in front of other people, listen, it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes a breakthrough in somebody's Christian life. I I would just want to free you from this. If you're one of those people who's really nervous about praying in the presence of other people, I would just caution you with this. Please release yourself from the idea of performance anxiety. You're not there to perform. You're not there to perform. Just pray before God in simple words. Just talk to God. And you know what? If people aren't impressed by your spirituality, then good on you. You're not there to impress them with your spirituality. Just feel free from that. You, you, you don't have to feel bound to that in the slightest way. But, but it is important. They prayed vocally. It says right there in verse 24, they raised their voice. By the way, it's very interesting. I don't want to get too deep into the dynamics of the ancient language and the grammar and all. I'll just say this, that just as it is in our English version, it's also true in the original ancient Greek there, that voice is in the singular. In other words, this means that they did not all pray individually speaking at the same time. It wasn't a prayer meeting with 20 people there and 20 individuals were all praying at the same time. No, instead, the fact that the voice is in the singular means that one person prayed and everybody agreed with that one so that they were really praying with one voice. And friends, this, this sort of touches on something that can be an incredible dynamic in an effective prayer meeting. I don't know how much prayer meetings have ever been a part of your Christian life. If they haven't been a part of your Christian life, I hope that they become a part. If they are, then you, you or have been, I should say, then you'll know what I'm going to say is true right now. A good prayer meeting is one of the most wonderful experiences in the Christian life. There's hardly anything that can encourage and lift up your soul to God like a good prayer meeting. And a bad prayer meeting, man, that is like the worst thing in the world, isn't it? (laughs) Now, I'll tell you one of the things. There's several dynamics that go into a good prayer meeting. But one of them is the spirit of agreement. Where one person prays, and while that one person is praying, it's not that everybody else is sleeping. It's not that everybody else is merely thinking about what they're going to pray when they have the opportunity to pray. Everybody else is with all of their heart, with all of their soul. They are agreeing with that person who's praying. That very legitimately, that one person is praying on behalf of the entire meeting. And everybody's heart, everybody's soul is joined to that one voice, is expressing the voice in the heart of everybody. Man, when you have that principle of agreement together at a prayer meeting, it makes for thrilling prayer meetings. When you don't have it, well, it's one of the things that can contribute to a bad prayer meeting. But here they were praying together with one accord. Verse 24 says that. They raised their voice. They prayed with one accord. That reminds us that they prayed in unity, right? No strife. No contention among them. There wasn't one group saying, we should pray for this. And another group saying, we should pray for that. They had the same mind together when they prayed. And there they were praying together with one accord, with one voice. And I love how they cried out to God there in verse 24. Did you see that? How they began to address him. They said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, can I, can I just say something that I know it's so evident. I don't mean to insult your intelligence when I say this, but, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll just point it out. 
They did not need to inform God of this as if he didn't know, right? It's it's not like God needed the affirmation in heaven, like God needed a little bit of encouragement. No, Lord, you really are God. It's not that situation at all. Now, Now, they're declaring the greatness of God, and that honors God, and it brings him glory. But just as importantly, you can see what they're doing. They're telling themselves that the Lord is God, right? They're proclaiming it not only to glorify God and to lift up his name, which is wonderfully legitimate, but they're also reminding themselves, Lord, you are God and you are the one who have made heaven and earth. You're the Lord of all creation, the God of all power. And by the way, it's again, and not to get too intricate here, but that word that this translated Lord there in verse 24, it's not the usual word for Lord in the New Testament. It's actually the ancient Greek word despotes, from which we get our English word despot, an all-powerful ruler. It was the word used of a slave owner or a ruler has power that cannot be questioned. They prayed with power and confidence because they absolutely knew that God was in control. With just such confidence, they came before God. They said, you're God, Lord. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. By the way, I think that's another very important thing to do in prayer. And again, I I don't mean this to be, you know, pedantic or, or insulting your intelligence, but it's very easy when we pray to forget who we pray to. We We just sort of lose sight of it, don't we? We just sort of don't catch the idea. We are praying to the eternal God who is enthroned in heaven. And when we pray, we're often forgetting that. Or worse yet, we pray to an imaginary God of our own ideas. No, the disciples, they had great power in prayer right here because they remembered who it was that they were praying to. And that just lifts up the soul. It lifts up your anticipation. Doesn't it lift up your faith? When you pray to the God who's in control of everything, you realize this prayer means something because I'm appealing to a God who has the power to shape things. Going on here now to verse 25, their prayer continues and they say this. They say, now who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. It's fascinating here. In the midst of this prayer... Peter speaks here, praying for all the disciples. Again, remember, they're praying together with one accord. Verse 25 says there that they went forth and they prayed. And they said, by the mouth of your servant, David. Now, again, they recognized that the words of the Old Testament, quoting Psalm 2 to be exact there, were really the words of God. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I want you to notice this again in verse 25. They said, by the words of your servant David, and then they quote Psalm 2. They believed that when Psalm 2 was speaking, it wasn't just the voice of David, it wasn't just the voice of the psalmist, but it was the voice of God. I believe that's an important point. 
They believed that the words of King David as recorded in Psalm 2 were actually the words of the Lord God. And they were said by the mouth of King David. But it's evident that Peter and the others there had a very high view of the Holy Scriptures. But what do they quote? It's very important to see what they quote there from Psalm 2. It's contained for us in verse 25. It says, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That is a psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. Make note of that. Read it yourself sometime this week. If you ever want to get encouraged, you feel like events are just crashing in on you and you don't know what God's going to do, you read Psalm 2. Psalm 2, God is just in control. Psalm 2, God is is laughing at his enemies. It's really a dramatic psalm. And the whole heart, the whole tone of Psalm 2 is that expression of the truth that God is in control. And they wanted to understand this. They wanted to understand that all this opposition that they faced, all the the, the scary trial that they had just been under, under the, the, the guise of the religious leaders there, that they should understand it all in the context that God is really in control, that God is king. He's the ruler in Zion. And what he does cannot be stopped. And this was actually going to be evident of the gospel that they were preaching, right? Now think about it here. The Christian movement is still at this time very weak. It could be very easily crushed. It could have been one of innumerable religious or spiritual movements that rose quickly and faded just as quickly. But but they have utmost confidence because this is the work of God. And that not only would it transform Jerusalem, not would only extend beyond Jerusalem into Judea, but it would transform the very world until here we are 2,000 years later in Santa Barbara, California, giving our attention to these things. That's a remarkable testimony of God's work. And this isn't only what they understood here. If you see what it also says in verse 28, they understood that these people could only do... Whatever your hand, meaning God's hand, and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. In other words, they had utmost confidence to see their circumstances in light of God's word. You see, they recognize that that, that the wrath of man even can never operate outside of the sphere of God's control. That that even though it was a scary thing to be put on trial, and and even though they, they had fear for their life, legitimately so, that God was in control. Look, I need to understand or help you understand something here. It's easy to believe that God is in control when you were just released from jail. That was Peter and John, right? Isn't that easy? Yes, Lord, hallelujah, you're in control. Look at your great victory. But I'll tell you, they believed that God was in control even later on when Stephen was martyred. They believed that God was in control when later on James would become the first apostolic martyr of the church. They believed that God was in control not only when they were released from prison, but they believed that God was in control even when they were not released and suffered the ultimate penalty. This was their standing, restful uh, concept of who God was and how he operated in the world that they could be at peace Because God was in control. They understood that these enemies of Jesus could only do whatever the hand of God allowed. Friends, if you understand that, 
that can bring almost unspeakable peace into your life. And many of us in the conflicts that we have with other people, let's say it's a family conflict, it could be a conflict that you have in the world of business, uh, or maybe you're, you're aspiring educationally to something and you feel like your life is in the hand of a professor, right? Or your life is in the hand of a, uh, of a board. Or your life is in the hand of some official or some supervisor, or some boss, whatever it is. You need to really understand that your life is in the hand of God. And that nothing can come to you except that which first comes through the hands of God. Now, I do not say this in the slightest way to, to recommend to you some attitude of passive acceptance of everything that happens in your life. No. Some things God allows into your life and into my life so that we, we would receive them not as something to passively accept, but, but as something to say, no, God, you want me to fight against this? You want me to make a stand against this. But even in the stand we make against it, we understand that God is in control. That God is enthroned in heaven. And if I could read it again, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against this Christ. And it didn't gain them anything. They were released and Jesus was glorified. Just as vain as it was for the nations to battle against the Lord in Psalm 2. That's how in control of our life God is. And again, I, I think that when you grab a hold of this, it brings the most, I, I don't know the word right to describe it. I was going to say awesome, but that, that almost sounds trivial. It brings almost an unspeakable peace for you to understand that your life is in God's hand. I am not at the mercy of another person for either good or evil. God is in control of my life. And listen, and to understand that God will not allow even the most wicked acts of men to result in permanent damage in the great scheme of His plan, both eternally and for my life. That's what they understood. Now, you would think that after verse 28 that they would just breathe easy. That they would just say, okay, Lord, great, you're in control. We don't have to worry. Let's just bask in this wonderful peace that you've given us. But look at what they pray here in verse 29. I think this is also remarkable. That now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Do you understand what they just said? They basically, in verse 29, they prayed for more trouble. Did they not? What got them into trouble to begin with? A man was dramatically healed. The word of God was boldly proclaimed and that got them into trouble. And what do they pray for? They pray for more trouble. Lord, you saw their threats. Now, would you please look upon us, verse 29 now, and give us boldness to speak your work. And God, stretch out your hand and keep doing radical miracles just like you did with that man who was by the beautiful gate. 
And that request is just consumed with God's cause, with God's glory, and not the comfort, not the advancement of the disciples. They say, okay, Lord, please, 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 more than anything, God, keep us safe. That wasn't it. Lord, give us boldness to proclaim the message, and you keep doing those miraculous things, God. They, they ask for things that would lead them to more confrontation, not less. And very boldly, right there in verse 30, they ask for God to stretch out his hand to heal. I think the conception of that is very important, how they prayed in verse 30. Let me read it to you again. It says right there in verse 30, By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Let me put it this way. Peter did not pray this. Peter did not pray, Lord, you used me to heal that guy. Do it again, Lord. I want another one to heal. No, they said, Lord, you stretch forth your hand to heal through your servants. And then I think this is the difference here. I think that there can be a subtle spiritual trap in the longing to be used to do miraculous things. Now, wouldn't any one of us be thrilled to be that person through whom God did a miracle? That really would be thrilling, isn't it? It would just be amazing for, for God to use our prayer, our voice, our hand, whatever it would be in us, that God would use something in us, something connected with us somehow to do something miraculous. You and I would just be absolutely stupefied by that. We, Oh, yes, Lord, it would be glorious. But I'll tell you this, there's a danger in such desires, is it not? Because, because those desires to be used in such a way are almost always connected with some feeling of pride within us, right? With some desire to be recognized as Mr. Miracle or Mrs. Miracle, right? Yes, Lord, that's what I want. I want other people to know that I'm in touch with your miraculous power. I want other people to know that I'm so close to you that you use me for such things. So friends, this leads us on a very, very delicate path to walk. Listen, I believe that God does miraculous things. And I believe that he wants to do them among his people. And I believe that he wants to do more of them and not less. I told you it was really remarkable just a few weeks ago when we were talking about this very same text a few weeks ago uh, on which Peter healed this man in this dramatic way. Well, again, let's be accurate here. God healed this man through Peter, but he certainly used Peter as an agency to heal this man. On that very morning, somebody was really wonderfully healed here at, at, at the morning service. It was just great. And so we see that. We, we, we know God does that. We want to see God do more of that and not less of that. Yet at the same time, we guard ourselves. Oh, Lord, we don't want to fall into that trap of being proud of the miraculous, of taking glory in that instead of a you and in you alone. Listen, there's something wretched within me, and maybe it's in some of you too, that says, I want to be known for how God can use me. Now, I would much rather, when I'm thinking spiritually, to just say, no, Lord, I'd rather you be known. That's what I want. 
Well, so they, they gave this impassioned prayer, verses 29 and 30. And if you want to see, I would love to be at a prayer meeting like this, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Do you understand what that says? The place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were given some kind of earthquake, some kind of shaking of the building. They say, oh, Lord, send that again. And this place looks seismically refitted enough to where we could pray such a prayer here, right? (laughs) Send such a thing, Lord. And we have no idea the extent of the shaking. It might have been something that they alone felt in the building. It might have been an earthquake, a time that the exact... I have no idea the extent of the shaking. I just know that when that prayer meeting ended, that says right there in the text, the place where they assembled together was shaken. God did something dramatic. The, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so wonderfully manifested that even the dead power of those walls, excuse me, those dead walls felt the power of the spirit of life. You could say this, that matter responded to the spirit. And by the way, it's just shaken. It was affected. By the way, can I, can I just make a sort of a spiritual analogy by this? The walls of that building where they were together were shaken, but those walls didn't change. In the same way, I have seen people genuinely shaken, genuinely affected by the Holy Spirit, but their lives weren't transformed. There was something still dead about them. It was as if the Holy Spirit contended with them, but, but, but whatever happened, their lives were not fundamentally changed. And I believe that that can happen. I believe that a person can be shaken by the Holy Spirit without being indwelt or transformed by the Spirit of God. But it happened a very dramatic way. That building, you can imagine how that just would have stirred every one of them, right? I mean, what an awesome thing that that would be. Now, by the way, you'll notice that mention of this shaking is made at Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And I remember years ago in 1994, I remember it because we lived in Simi Valley at the time. And in 1994, there was the, the, the tremendous Northridge earthquake, right? And I remember people noting that the Northridge earthquake happened at 4.31 in the morning. And this earthquake is, is, is described here, or the shaking of the room is described at Acts 4.31. And do you want to know what the connection of that is? Absolutely meaningless. <laughs> I mean, come on, folks, listen. What do people connect such things for? Are people going to act like the divisions of chapter and verse are inspired? I mean, they came in much later. It's just one of those funny coincidences. But really, it's absolutely meaningless. But it, it seemed significant at the time when everybody was so... That was a frightening occurrence to be right there in the middle of that earthquake. And so far more important than the shaking of the building. If you take a look at verse 31, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, they were filled with the Holy Spirit again. That experience that they had on the day of Pentecost was not a one-time experience. They were filled on the day of Pentecost. They were filled again. 
Matter of fact, for Peter, we have at least three specific evidences of filling for Peter, right? He was filled on the day of Pentecost. He was filled previously in this chapter when he was going to give his wonderful words before that, that assembled group of religious leaders. And now he's filled again being among this group. And again, this just speaks to me so powerfully about how our experience with the Holy Spirit needs to be an ongoing, fresh experience. That He wants to fill us and fill us and fill us. And this is what we need to be open to. This is what we need to open our hearts and open our faith to. It's for God to have that continual work of the Holy Spirit within us to fill us and to fill us and to fill us. And then the result of it all, you saw it at the end of verse 31, where it says that they spoke the word of God with boldness. They received the boldness that they asked for, right? They asked for boldness in the previous verse. Here they received the boldness. And that word for boldness is kind of special. It basically means to tell it all, to just not hold back. They were just able to tell it all. And when I think about that idea of boldness and how important it is for today, I think we need to be able to tell it all. I think about how common it is for us to actually hide our spiritual life from other people. Let me explain this, how this often happens. Now, just, just an illustration of it. Let's say uh, over a weekend, uh, perhaps at a church service, perhaps at a prayer meeting, perhaps just at home or, or, or at some kind of conference or retreat or something. Let's say over a weekend, God does something really profound in your life. I mean, God just... I don't know, minister something to you that you really need, that, that, that God gives you an answer that you've been aching for, that he heals a hurt that's been lingering and sort of bleeding out for a while, whatever it is. God does something really significant in your life over a weekend. And then Monday you go to work and somebody asks you, well, what'd you do this weekend? And I tell you, what would be the immediate day? Nothing. <laughs> And how difficult it would be just to be bold enough not to dress it up. Nobody's asking you to climb on top of a desk and start preaching to the whole office. But just to say to that other person, you know, it might sound strange to you, but I'll just tell you, God touched my life this weekend in a way that I didn't really expect him to, and I'm just still a little amazed by it. Now, when you say those words, what, is somebody going to slap your face for saying something like that? No, they, I mean... I think somebody like that would be, wow, I I would want to hear more about that. But isn't there something very strange within us that almost resists with everything we have to to be so natural and to just tell it all? Again, I'm not talking about getting out of Bible and saying, well, now let me teach you a Bible study over the water cooler or something like that. I'm just speaking speaking about your life with God as, as telling it all, just not hiding it. Listen, this desire to tell it all, to to just present the Word of God, to present who Jesus is and what He had done for him, this was one of the tremendous, tremendous marks of the early church. And and this boldness here, I I would say that because they prayed for it in verse 30, the evidence of it in verse 31, it, it shows that it's a gift of God, that it was received through prayer. It wasn't something that they tried to work up in themselves. They prayed for it, God gave it to them, and it was very natural with them. And I would say that. 
Last thing in the world I want to do this morning is condemn anybody here for not being bold enough. That's a very easy stick to beat somebody over the head with. I would just say, if you sense that this isn't evident in your life, then why don't you just pray for it? You pray for it and let God do what he'll do with it in your life. Now going on now, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. I tell you, they had a remarkable unity reflected for us there in verse 32. It was wonderful evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in their midst. And I think it's important that we understand what this unity was. Unity among Christians, it doesn't mean conformity where everybody is exactly alike. That's not what we're shooting for one bit. That's not God's desire. You take a look at God's work in creation, God's work among his people. It's a work of almost endless variety and diversity, right? When God brings us together in unity, it's not to make us all exactly alike. Nor is it a unity that's merely thought of in organizational terms, where everybody has to be forced into the same denomination. I would sort of agree with James Montgomery Boyce on this point. If I could quote his words from his commentary on the book of Acts, he says this, that the worst times in the history of the church have been when everybody has been part of one large organization. It is not that kind of unity. No, God's work is diverse among his people. And we're happy that that unity doesn't mean organizational unity or or, or some kind of conformity. But what it means is an essential heart. Look at it right there. Verse 32 tells you what it means. One heart and one soul. And that kind of unity expressed itself very plainly in a care for other people. Because of that unity, they regarded people as being more important than things. So we read in verse 32 there that they had all things in common. They recognized God's ownership of everything. It all belonged to God and therefore it could be shared among his people. Because God had touched their lives so deeply, they found it easy to share all things in common. Now, I think I've discussed this before because this isn't the first place in the book of Acts where it mentions this kind of dynamic. But but it isn't accurate to really see this as an early form of communism. Communism is not koinonia. It's not this wonderful spirit-led sharing of life and, and of things together that's described in the New Testament. No, you see, communism says what's yours is mine. Koinonia says what is mine is yours. Let's share it together. There's a whole huge distinction between the two. There's also evidence here. Uh, Again, I don't want to get too intricate into the uh, grammar of the ancient Greek text and all of that, but to say here that simply that the Greek here does not mean that everybody sold their property at once. Rather, the idea is that from time to time, as the needs came forth, the, the, the Lord brought the needs to their attention and they simply met those needs. And because of it all, look at the result here in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Because of this unity, because of the work of the Spirit in their midst, great power was among them, great grace was among them. It's wonderful to see what sort of the literal ancient Greek words are there. It's, I don't mean to trivialize this, but you'll get the idea. It, it was mega power and mega grace. I kind of like the sound of those things. 
Because I don't just need power from God. I need some mega power from God. I just don't need grace from God. I need mega grace from God. And here it is right here flowing through the church. This great grace was upon them all. And especially as it enabled them to give witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's central in everything. Central in everything was the fact that they proclaimed the fact that Jesus was risen. And here, concluding the chapter, we have some examples of this early giving. Here we begin here. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This was a radical season of giving. Verse 34 says that all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And this radical giving was absolutely necessary to meet the needs of that early congregation. Let's remember the dynamic at work in Jerusalem there. You had hundreds, if not thousands, of new converts there who were brought from all ends of the Roman Empire, saved on the day of Pentecost. They didn't have homes, they didn't have jobs, they didn't have livelihoods there. Again, a good number of those who were saved were visitors. And they needed support. They needed help. And so the early Christians, they just said, look, let's give, let's share, let's support, let's reach out one to another. And they did it. They, uh, they, they helped those who had need among them. And as it says there, verse 34, all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. They, they didn't wait for others to give. When a need arose, they gave what they had to help others. And as it says there in verse 35, they distributed to each one as anyone had need. It's a beautiful thing. And we look at this and we say, man, this is wonderful. This is how it should be among Christians. Now, I have to say, in all honesty, we know from the later writings of the Apostle Paul, when he's writing and instructing churches, this generosity of the early Christians began to be abused somewhat early in the church. Because later the Apostle Paul teaches regarding who should be helped in the church and how they should be helped. And Paul gave very specific directions. He gave directions like this. He said that the church has to discern who the truly needy are. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He also said that that if someone can work to support himself, then he's not truly needy, and then he must provide for his own needs. That's also in 1 Timothy 5, as well as in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul also said that if family can support a needy person, then the church should not support them. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And he said that those who are supported by the church should also make some return to the church body. Again, all this is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul gives instructions for how the church should help the needy. He also said that it's right for the church to examine the moral conduct of somebody before giving them support. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he relates the idea that the support of the church should be for the most basic necessities of living. Again, I I didn't put these passages on the PowerPoint. We we put the notes out on the Internet. You can look at it through the church website if you want the specific citations and all that. But it's important for us to understand that the Bible says, look, these things should be done within the church family and they should be done in the right way. 
But I have to say, when I think about this, when I look about this, I, I had to reflect upon it. You know, here, here we are living in Santa Barbara, and I haven't even lived in Santa Barbara for a full year. Came here in July. I'm so blessed by how warmly we've been received by everybody. But, you know, when I talk to people who live in other places, other pastors, other friends who live in other parts of the world, they want to know what it's like to live in Santa Barbara. And people have this image of what it's like to live in Santa Barbara, right? They think that the weather is always gorgeous. And most of the time they're right, even though we have a cold morning this morning, right? Secondly, I think that they, the, the impression that people have is that a community like Santa Barbara is far more affluent than it really is. I mean, just people have that impression that, that you know, that there's just far more affluence in the community than there really is. And they wonder, you know, well, those people who are affluent or do have means or, or they're better off than other people, they're, they're not really generous people, are they? I have to say, and I'll, I'll just be honest with you, I might be naive on this point, but my impression is to be very impressed with the generosity of God's people living in this community. I'm very impressed how people of smaller means and how people of larger means, how they give and how they open up their heart to so many different things and so many needful things and how many requests are made upon them to give to different things. I'm very impressed with people's generosity. I think it's a wonderful evidence of God working in a person's heart. That's just been my impression from my early months here in Santa Barbara, but I think it's a wonderful thing. I think that this generosity and a generous spirit as it's displayed here in the book of Acts, this displays something very important from God's work. Very important. Because look, if you think about it, we could just draw this sort of with the conclusion with all the different things we've seen in this morning's text, right? If you want to organize it this way, you see three marks of the spirit's work in this text here. First of all, you see prayer, right? They, they prayed. Secondly, you see that they were unified, that they were in unity. You see that part. And then thirdly, you see that they were generous. And they were remarkably generous here at the end of Acts chapter 4. Remarkably so. Well, listen, can't you simply see that those are three marks of the Spirit's work? That that's what happens when the Spirit of God is at work among people. And I don't mean to say for a moment that that's the only thing that happens, but that's three things we see right here. And I would say this. That it's not within human nature to do those things, or at least not to do them well, apart from the work of the Spirit of God. We're not prayerful by nature, but when God's Spirit works upon us, we are. We're not unified by nature. By nature, we tend to conflict with one another and get in arguments with one another. But by the Spirit of God among us, we're unified. And by nature, I don't think human beings are generous. By nature, people tend to be selfish and hold on to what they have. But when the Spirit of God is at work among people, they are generous. And their hearts are big and open to one another. And I think about it with these three areas of the Christian life. How easy it is to manipulate people in these three areas. Do you know about the easiest sermon for a pastor to preach is to make you feel guilty about your prayer life? Because there's not probably a single person in this room that you feel great about your prayer life and that there's no room for improvement with it. That's the easiest thing in the world. You could do the same thing with unity, right? 
It's very easy to beat Christians over the head over the subject of unity. And generosity, man, that's a stick that's always available to hit people over the head, right? Because it's very relevant to us, isn't it? And it's not an easy issue for us in the Christian life. It's so easy to speak about those three areas in particular and fill it full of guilt and manipulation. You're not praying enough. You're not unified enough. You're not generous enough. On and on and to lay it upon people. But I want you to notice something. This wonderful attitude of prayer and unity and generosity in the early church. It did not come because Peter or John laid a manipulating sermon upon them, right? It did not come because they themselves made vows and resolutions to do these things. How did it work? It came because the Spirit of God was poured out upon it and they received and responded to that work of the Spirit of God. Here's the thing. I want you to pray and to pray more. I want you to be unified and to be more unified. I want you to be generous and more generous. But I know that that will happen not through your vows, not through your resolutions, certainly not through my manipulation. That will happen as the Spirit of God works among us all. Here's the funny thing about the Christian life. First you receive, then you do. It always begins with what God does in us, not with what we do for Him. And so that's what we do. We come back and not to make the main point of this. You need to pray more. You need to be more unified. You need to be more just. No, the, the main point of this is we need to seek God and be filled with the Spirit. We need to have Him do that wonderful, loving, radical work in us. And as we're transformed by the Spirit of God, we will fulfill what He has us to do in every venue. I want that for my life. How about yours? You ready to receive something from God?